Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. To crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Megan Hayes. That's like the first time I've ever said that in front of a non-therapeutic person or people for that matter. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. That and more. But before that, I wanted to say, how great would it be if the post office was open 24-7? You'd have no more limited hours. You could get your mailing and shipping done on your schedule. And now you can when you use Stamps.com. You can print postage whenever you need it right from your own desk. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassle of going to the post office. No more rushing there during your busy day. Just use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mailman picks it up. You'll save money with Stamps.com, too. You get exact postage the instant you need it. No more overpaying. And even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. We use Stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it and right now you can use our promo code risk for this special offer it's a no risk trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to fifty five dollars free postage so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in risk that's stamps.com enter risk Also, as you might recall, Chris Castiglione was a member of the Risk team for a long time. He created our site at risk-show.com. And I've mentioned that Chris went on to create an online class called One Month HTML. A lot of Risk fans took the class and then wrote into us telling us how much they loved it. They learned how to code with these one-month videos that you watch online. But remember, the one-month guys also have an even more popular course now, One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials that teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build their first web app, like a simple photo-sharing app in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a real person online to help you out 
at any time. In the one-month Rails class, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their own dream app and taking their careers to the next level with it. What are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk loves you. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining. And as always, you'll be helping to support risk. Again, it's one month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Shay behind me now. Not the Shay, not, you know, the famous one in the mountains with the machine guns and all. This one's just funky. Now, folks, we are calling today's episode Survivors, and you can probably guess from that title that this is going to be one of those heavier episodes of Risk. You know, oftentimes we go from funny to strange to heavy. Today we're going from heavy to heavy to heavy. Because last week was a very heavy week in the U.S., another one. So it felt like a good time to acknowledge the weight. We should all try to carry the weight together more by at the very least listening to one another. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Maya James. Maya is a remarkable person. She first started listening to Risk at the age of 11, and she says that it saved her life, that listening to Risk really got her through quite a lot, as you will learn when you hear her story. Maya is 17 now and uh, maybe the youngest person we've had on the show, and certainly one of the most adorable. Maya is just a lovely soul. But before that, we're going to start with actress Megan Hayes. She's been in everything from The Hunger Games to Sleepy Hollow. She told this remarkable story at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. We do it every fourth Thursday of the month at the Nerdist showroom there in L.A., So without further ado, here she is. This is Megan Hayes with a story we call Daddy Dearest. y'all how's it going um so 
On the eve of my 30th birthday, that's <laughs> right, throw them back, honey. I always go down better with a couple of bevies. <laughs> anyway, on the eve of my 30th birthday, I received a message from my dad on my answering machine. <laughs> answering machine. <clears throat> Megan, this is dad. <laughs> my dad always insisted on announcing himself, even though his thick Alabama accent was unmistakable. I wanted to let you know that while we were married, your mother was a royal slut. <laughs> and I'm gonna need you to take a DNA test because I don't think you're mine. <laughs> oh, and happy birthday. <laughs> Click. <sighs> wow. Oh, holy fuck. <laughs> a DNA test? You know, it never ceases to amaze me how your life can change forever in an instant. A DNA test, really, what the fuck? Well, I asked my mom if it was true. And honestly, I wouldn't have blamed her. My dad was a revered Southern Baptist minister and world-renowned theologian. So um, he was also, he was adored by his uh, congregation, beloved by his students, who often refer to him as lovably eccentric. And he was, don't get me wrong, he was a Princeton graduate, a Fulbright scholar who sounded like an uneducated redneck, but could read 12 languages, including Hebrew and Arabic. When he taught in class, he chewed tobacco the entire time, wore shirts that were way too small for him, just covered in tobacco stains. And he lived on a cow farm and named every single one of his cows and wept every time he sent one of them to slaughter. So, I guess, yeah, that qualifies as eccentric. And everybody loved him. But, because there's always a but, behind closed doors, <clears throat> my dad suffered from unmedicated schizophrenia and was abusive to us, his immediate family. And not just you're like beaten with a bell, told you're, you're worthless and you'll never amount to anything garden variety abuse, which is pretty fucking awful. But when it came to abuse, my dad loved to yes and. So it was that. And a tie you up in the basement and torture you all in the name of God kind of fun. So... Um, can I totally side note for a second? That's like the first time I've ever said that in front of a non-therapeutic per person or people for that matter. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Cuz I don't know if y'all I don't know if y'all are familiar with the South, but like in the South, we do not talk about anything. And in fact, we pretend like things aren't happening. So like, you know, my house could be like burning down behind me, and I'm just going to be like, oh, "Wow, that that's nothing, y'all." <laughs> don't pay any attention, but it's a little hot, isn't it? Can I get you some tea and make you some pie? It only take me an hour. I'll be right back, honey. So I even remember like we got so good at pretending in my family. I remember being a seven-year-old child watching in terror one night as my father choked my mother, going to bed, wondering if I was going to wake up the next morning and even have a mother. So I come creeping down the hall the next day, and there she is in the kitchen, just making eggs and bacon, like nothing ever happened. The only evidence was you could still see the marks on her neck. But it was never mentioned 
ever again. And then you get so good at like pretending that nothing's happening that you start to believe in yourself that nothing is happening. And then you convince yourself that nothing ever happened and then you forget all about it until you wake up. Well, I mean by you, I mean me, I, until I wake up in February of 2013, a grown woman, but totally flooded with memories, horrifying memories of being stuck in a basement alone and terrorized, wanting so much for my daddy to protect me, except daddy's who I need protecting from. So eccentric was always a word that was used to kind of justify my dad's behavior. Oh, he's so eccentric. So to me, well, needless to say, I've always had kind of an issue with the word eccentric. To me, eccentric is kind of defined as carte blanche to be a dick, <laughs> right? Anyway, I digress. So back to mom. I ask mom, hey, did you cheat on dad? And she says to me, Megan, I swear I did not stray. So I, I believe her. But really, why? Well, I'm 30 years old. Why now? Why does dad need me to take a fucking DNA test now, right? I know. I know. It's the will. He wants to write me out of the will, leave everything to my batshit crazy therapist sister who adored him. It's fine. It's fine by me. I never wanted anything from him anyway. And I told him this over sushi lunch at Momo Ya in Atlanta, Georgia. That is a real place. (laughs) (laughs) Clever Atlantans. (laughs) Anyway, so he's, but he tells me, he's like, it's not about the will. It's he's worried about me. The first person that he says is my real father was the um, former headmaster of the private school that I had attended. And, you know, my mom was his secretary for years. But then I remind him that we all met this headmaster when I was nine. So... (laughs) So the next person that he is really convinced that is my baby daddy has a horrendous hereditary disease and I need to get this DNA test because he is so worried that I will be stricken with the same illness. So, um, thanks for looking out for me. (laughs) Fed up with him and the conversation and the sushi wasn't that good. I told him that I would take the DNA test and I never wanted to see him ever again. I arrived before my father at the Any Lab Test facility located in a strip mall upstairs from Party City. (laughs) You know, it's so funny because I had always wondered like, oh my God, who goes to those Any Lab Test places? (laughs) Apparently, I do. I was greeted by a very large lab technician and I told her that I was there for a DNA test. She then asks me, where is the kid? Ma'am, I am the kid. But you're grown. I know. She just shakes her head. Mm-mm-mm. Men. Uh-huh. Finally, my dad arrives, the hilarious life of the party, getting the lab technician to fall madly in love with him. Of course, we swab our cheeks with Q-tips done. I storm dramatically out of the AnyLab test facility, and he comes scurrying after me. Well, if you ain't gonna see me again, I'm taking the car. Okay, so I had, (laughs) another side note, I had just moved back from, uh, after graduating from NYU, 
And until I could get on my feet, my dad had agreed to let me borrow one of his two Buick LeSabres to drive until I could buy a car. He holds out his hand. Begrudgingly, I give him the keys. He then locks Smokey Joe, the Buick LeSabre that I had been driving, hops into his Buick LeSabre and drives off, leaving me stranded in front of Party City. The loneliest place ever when you're not attending a party. <laughs> Six weeks later, I got another message on my answering machine. <clears throat> Megan, this is Dad. You're mine. <laughs> Click. Secretly, I had hoped to be a love child. <laughs> July 11th, 2013 was yet another day that where my life would change forever in an instant it was the day that I was moving to LA I was so excited I know I was ready I had my car all packed and just two nights before that I had shared with a group that I oh hmm how do I say this uh, a group that um where people gather to share personal stories but who wish to remain um anonymous <laughs> Y'all know what I'm getting at, right? Okay, okay. So I had just two nights, oh, I'd actually often shared with this group about how my family was like the mafia, that no, every time I tried to get out, they kept pulling me back in with drama. And don't get me wrong, I dropped everything, like every time. But on this night, I was sharing with the group that it didn't matter what kind of drama my family threw at me. There was nothing that was going to stop me from leaving for LA on July 11, 2013, because I am not Michael Corleone. But my dad had different plans. That was the day he dropped dead from an aneurysm. While cleaning out his house, my sister and my brother and I, under the same roof for the first time in almost 20 years, I found my DNA results. Two weeks later, when I did leave for LA, I brought them with me. <laughs> just in case I ever got the balls to tell this story. So here it is. Everybody see it? I don't know if y'all can tell or not, but there's tobacco stains. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so here it says, okay, Megan Elizabeth Hayes. Ch I'm sorry, child Megan Elizabeth Hayes. Alleged father. <laughs> not just father. Oh, and gentlemen, any boys out there who want to know if your daughter or child is your child, do it in person. Don't leave a voicemail message. <laughs> um, so alleged father, John Hayes. Probability of paternity, 99.996%. Well, that's right, Dad. I'm yours. Thank you. I really found out I was black was when I was three and we had just moved to Michigan. My dad's always been really cautious just like me. He told me that I'm black and people are going to treat me differently for it. 
you can tell a little kid that, hey, those other kids don't want to play with you because they think that you're too light-skinned or they think you're too black. And that would happen a lot. He told me the first time about his family in Texas when I was five because my parents never down-talked me. They always talked to me like I was a person, and they always gave me a very big vocabulary, so I was talking a lot. We always had these conversations before bed. I told him that I thought it was awesome that I was black or something cool like that. I was like, I like being black. And he was like, that's really good because a lot of people have suffered for it. And I've watched people die. I've seen dead bodies hanging from trees. I've seen people get drive-by shot. I've seen my brothers and me, and he had 10 siblings, all get chased by dogs coming home from school because some racist white kid just wanted to torture them. And they had to deal with it because that was Texas and that was normal. That was completely normal. The first time I was called a nigger, I was in kindergarten, and I was five years old, and I knew what it meant. My kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Ingle, was really sweet, and she hated that I had to learn what the N-word was. So she made the kid write me a letter, and it goes kind of like this. Dear Maya, What I said in the hallway last week was wrong and hurtful. I have respect for everything you and your people faced, and I am very sorry. I don't know if you have ever had a six-year-old write to you, but that is not anything that they could even come up with. It's beautiful, it's eloquent, but it is not something that a six-year-old can write. It is something that a kindergarten teacher can write, though. And I started to notice this kindergarten teacher script as I left kindergarten and as I kept getting older and going to different grades, the names always changed. And the thing that they said was always worse than the last. It drove me to do something. So I started educating myself. I started learning about black rights and Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and Malcolm X and Charles V. Hamilton. I love that guy. I was so young and I was starting to get my own ideals about race and it was beautiful. But that didn't help how bad I felt. So it was when I was in fourth grade in science class on Martin Luther King Day. And we were set up with this projector on this big screen showing the I Have a Dream speech. And the whole thing just captivated me. His words got louder and louder and they got filled with more passion. And I noticed that no one in the entire class is paying any attention. And I am baffled. I don't know why no one would listen. 
I also noticed that there was a girl I know. Her name is Katie. And she was in the corner of the room in what I can only describe as a fuming pile of anger. Something about this had really, really pissed her off. She was scrunch-faced, sad, and fiercely angry. She was pulled aside because she was being rude and like having a hissy fit in front of the whole class. She said, Mr. Mida, my dad told me not to believe anything that you say because you're just trying to give us a liberal agenda and Maya's a nigger. By my first year of middle school, I was having sharp rocks thrown at me every day and I was being called the N-word all the time. Kids love to go up to you and ask you if they can tell you a racist joke. They think it's really, really funny, like, oh, can I tell you a racist joke? And every single time now, I'm like, no, no, you're not my friend, you're not the person I want to be around right now, like, you have just showed your ass to me. But back in the day, when I was in middle school, you had no choice, otherwise you were pinned as being too sensitive. So. I would say, yeah. And they said, what's the difference between a park bench and a black man? One can support a family. And I think of my dad. And it's so wrong. They're so wrong. My dad has always been the bigger man. He's always been colorblind and sometimes it makes people pin him as an Uncle Tom. But he never judges bigots. He never judges anybody. He knows they're wrong. We talk about it. He knows his views politically and socially. He just respects everybody. And he always respected me. My number one bully was named Cody Waite, and he would tell me I was sweaty and gross-smelling, I was unlovable, and that I was just trash and dirt, and no one would ever want me. And the teachers weren't helping at this point. They were just as racist as everybody else was. I remember having to clean a cafeteria table with janitorial supplies because I sat on it and the lunch lady said no one would want your butt on there it's so nasty and I knew it was because I was black I was watching another white kid like sitting on the table right next to me and then my two girl bullies tell me that I'm unlovable again and that no one will date me and no one will take me to my first middle school dance because I'm so gross. I remember one of them, Scarlett, she actually told my friends to stop hanging out with me. And I go into the bus on the way home and Cody doesn't stop 
telling me these horrible things. And my other bully, Logan, starts calling me the N-word. And at the point where I get home, he's like being violent towards me and telling me he'll kill me. I say, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? And he's like, you're nothing. You're nobody. If I killed you right now, no one would care. And I said, really? If you're going to threaten my life, I'm going to call the cops because this was not the first time my life was threatened. I say, I'm going to call the cops. And he says, do it. No one's going to believe you because you're black and I'm white. And it always works out that way, doesn't it? After I walk home from the bus stop crying, I go into my mom's bathroom and I try to figure out how to take her razors out of her leg shavers so that I can kill myself. And this is the first time I've ever felt so lonely and so impulsive and so angry. And it's the first time I've ever thought that I shouldn't be alive that no one should live like this. My mom walks in on me and she says, what are you doing? What are you doing, Maya? Why would you do this? Why would you do this? And she, <laughs> she takes me and she brings me into her room and she sits me down and I just burst out in tears. And the only thing that I can say is the kids at school hate me, mom. They hate me because I'm black. And it's been going on since I was five years old. And this is the last day that I can handle it. My mom looks down at me. I can tell she feels horrible. <laughs> and I feel horrible. And we both don't know what to say to each other. And so we just cry for a little bit. She tells me how my brothers were bullied racially in California for different reasons. How my brother had a gun pulled on him. And how she was bullied on the way home from school and how horrible it is. But also, how horrible it is that we have to grasp the fact that this is based on just my color. And then she tells me, she says, you can be a school of choice student. You can decide what school you feel safe in before you're forced to go there. So I do and I make friends. I make lots of friends. I even made a boyfriend or two. They were all different types of colors and they had all different types of drama and they've had all different types of struggles. And I focused on educating myself because that was the most important part of the entire equation. So I got in to Interlochen. I went to boarding school and I met Tony Kushner, Andrea Gibson, which inspired me eventually to get really deeply into spoken word. 
And then before I knew it, I was performing at my school and at the Portland Poetry Slam in 2013. I had a little itty bitty fan base and I was like so excited. And even though there's no solvent solution to racism, it's what you do with the worst that really matters. This is Risk. This is the great Mavis Staples. If you know me, you know I am a huge fan of the Staples singers. Mavis is 70 years old in this recording, uh, 2008. Freedom Highway was one of the Staples singers' very first songs around about 1960, I think. And we just heard from the wonderful Maya James. Like I said... Maya discovered the show when she was 11. I know Risk is not officially for kids, but I also know that I was a super, super self-aware and precocious kid, and I would have been listening to this show at 11, and I would have found great encouragement from the show as well, uh, not feeling like such a freak <laughs> from listening to such a freaky host, for one. Although this hypothetical is beginning to fold in on itself. Now, folks, don't forget the fantastic Risk Live shows we have coming up on June 25th. We are in both New York at the Pit and Los Angeles at the Nerdist Showroom. On the 17th of July, we're in Minneapolis. The theme that night is shocking, and we're still taking pitches I'm at Kevin at RiskDashShow.com. 
We're back in New York on the 23rd and L.A. on the 23rd. We have a storytelling workshop in Reno, Nevada on the 25th of July. And that same night in Reno, we have a show where the theme is Mindfuck. Again, still taking bitches. Email me at kevin at show.com. We're in Philadelphia on August 21st. The theme is Rattled. And we're in D.C. on August 22nd. The theme that night is ludicrous. Again, taking pitches for D.C. and Philly. Kevin at Risk-Show.com. To get tickets for any of those things, the workshops or the shows, go to Risk-Show.com slash tour. Now, our final story comes from a good friend of mine. This is another heartbreaker, folks. This is my friend Ed and he told this one at the Risk Live show in New York City. Here he is now with a story we call Quid Pro Quo. My family ended up in Wyoming when I was about 12 years old because my dad was in the military. Most people think of Wyoming in terms of uh, nature and wildlife and Yellowstone. But I think if Wyoming seceded from the United States, it'd be like the sixth largest nuclear power in the world. So there's all these nuclear missiles out there. My dad was in the military so we, and, and he was, uh, guarded the nuclear <laughs> missile bases. He started out as a drill sergeant, but then uh, when I, this was when I was about five, we were in Texas. He was court-martialed for brutality. Um, now, if you can imagine how brutal you have to be as a drill sergeant in 1968, sending men to Vietnam to be court-martialed, uh, that's my dad. And, um, <laughs> So he ended up transitioning into the military police, which says all you need to know about that trajectory. Um, but he was my dad. And so I had a high and tight crew cut every two weeks until um, we got to Wyoming. The long fuse that was my parents' marriage finally detonated when we were there, which was as far away from any family members or friends or anyone we knew. And my dad was just the kind of guy that could punch a pregnant wife and uh, have have no problems with it. And like I, there were days I couldn't go to school because uh, my mom would keep me home till the black eyes were gone. And it was just terrible. Like he would be beating my mother, and I would jump on his back at ten to try and stop him. And then he'd throw me and keep going with her. At the end of the, the whole thing, he ends up leaving one night in a huff and uh, 
cleaned out all the bank accounts and disappeared with the car the next day. So he left my mother with no job, no car, empty bank accounts, and four kids in Cheyenne, Wyoming. The last thing that we did as a family, it's funny, I'll never forget this, was the Freedom Train was coming through uh, Cheyenne to celebrate the bicentennial. And that was kind of like the last thing we ever did was go and see the exhibits of, uh, of our country. And then he was gone. And life was fucking hard. And we had no clue of how to, how to do anything. And it was so bad. It was like, how can I be wishing for that fucker to be back here? Because that was better. So we went to the Catholic school, which was in Cheyenne, a few blocks away from us. And they gave my mom a job as a secretary down there. And we got free lunch at the school and we just, you know, tried to do the best we could. We got food stamps and, you know, I became the, uh, the man of the house. Like I would go out and rake leaves and mow lawns and shovel snow. And uh, we had these envelopes. Uh, I put my money in the, the house payment envelope first. That was the one we'd have to fill up. We'd sit at the kitchen table. My mom was just you know, just a wreck. Like, and, and I'm trying to be like, no, it's okay, Mom. I'll uh, mow some more lawns or shovel some more snow. And <clears throat> I would be an altar boy down at the um, church. And if you did funerals, the, the families of the deceased would tip you. So I would always try and uh, volunteer for all the funeral um, gigs that I could get as an altar boy. Then we got this new bishop. He came to Wyoming, uh, and it was a big deal because the old bishop had been like this 80-year-old guy who never got out and never did anything, and was just kind of like this old, dusty dude that nobody really knew about. And this new bishop was like in his late 50s, kind of an energetic guy. And I met him during one of my altar boy gigs, and he said, would you be able to come and uh, rake leaves at, at, the, at the bishop's house for me? And I was, yeah, fine. So, I mean, the bishop's mansion, it was like, it had columns in front, and it had a big wrought iron fence around it, and a big lawn, and, and shrubs, and everything. So I started doing, you know, mow the lawn, and uh, rake the leaves, and shovel the snow. Then at Thanksgiving time, couple priests pulled up from the church like the day before Thanksgiving and they get out and they have these cardboard boxes and we had brought food uh, cans you know cans of corn my mom had given each one of us to bring to school for the poor people you know the, the food drive that they have at the school and so the priests pulled up um, and get out and they give us uh, a turkey and um, these cans of food and my mom said it was like it was because she worked at the church and these were things that they had they had left over and uh, and I you know that made sense so it was just like okay it, it wasn't like we were getting our cans of corn back you know and so we uh, you know we have a good uh, Thanksgiving dinner and then I'm going to uh, shovel snow at the bishops and it was a Saturday, you know, we had a, it's Wyoming, so it 
fucking snowed every week. And I would be over there and I'd, you know, shovel the snow. And then this day, I mean, the bishop's house was like incredible. He had uh, this cooler in the garage that was just filled with every kind of soda you can imagine. He had, you know, root beer and country time lemonade and Shasta, every flavor. And we, I, you know, it was like you get a blackberry soda if you wanted. And we didn't have any of that at our house. So, and he also did a lot of entertaining. So there was like, honey roasted cashews and shit like just boxes of it and pretzels and all this stuff and he would say to me after you're done whatever the chore is you know let's go in the garage we'll have a soda you can drink have all you want you know and and uh have all the snacks you want look we got plenty you know and and, and you're doing a good job so don't worry about it and i'd be there and i'd be drinking these sodas and i was just like wow this is treats i don't get and so then this particular saturday you know, it was right after Thanksgiving, and um, he says to me, you know, you come up to my bedroom. And uh, I go up there, and he's sitting on the bed. He's got like a half-full rocks glass with, with whiskey in it and a cigarette. And he's like, I don't tell anybody I smoke, uh, you, know, it's, it's, you know. And he's like, he pulls me up next to him, and he goes, now it's time for confession. Now, I knew all about confession because I really didn't like to go, but it was something that you did in church, in the screen, in a booth. You know, you kind of knew which guy was in which booth so you could pick, you know, according to who was more lenient for whichever sin you were doing. But, you know, you never actually had to see the guy face to face. And so he goes, now, you know, it's time for confession. And I was like, oh, this doesn't seem like anything I've ever done before. So I kind of trot out my laundry list. You know, I was rude to my mother and I punched my brother and, uh, you know, didn't let my sister join in or, you know, whatever my little shitty 12-year-old list of sins was. And then he's like, no, 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 no. You can't, no, no, this isn't going to work if you don't, like, get to the real sins. And I was like, well, I, I don't know what you mean. And he goes, what about the impure thoughts? And I was like, impure thoughts? No, I, I, I'm drawing a blank here, dude. I, I, I was 12. Like, for me, puberty was like five years away. Like, I was a small, pale, hairless kid in the gym. Like, everybody else was sprouting hair and muscles and deepening voices and getting taller. And I was just like this little dude, like, scared of of everything I'd like I would never take a shower and and so I didn't have impure thoughts I didn't know what masturbation was I'd never seen pornography I, it was just all still to be discovered and I definitely didn't have any impure thoughts that's very frustrating for him because uh, he says you know you, you're not going to get a full confession if you don't confess all your sins and, and I just kept drawing a blank so he goes listen Pull down your pants. You're going to have to show me what you do when you think about girls. And I was like, uh, I, 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 and I start to, I start to, I, I didn't cry, but I got like kind of choked up. And I was like, this is so fucking weird, man. I don't know how to, what's the next thing I'm supposed to do? Because you're asking me about stuff I don't know about. So he pulls my pants down. And at this point, it's like this, we're, we're having this like, thing where we're, we're sparring kind of and then he goes you know what the church has been really good to your family and 
It would just be a shame if all of that came to an end because you cannot confess your sins. And I looked at him and I'm like, well, I'm just trying to, you know, I, 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 what, what is it that, you know, I should be saying or doing? And he's like, you know, the church needs you to confess and I'm the bishop and this is how, like, you just need to do what I'm asking you to do or you're not gonna be able to be uh, forgiven and it would just be terrible for your uh, sins to like make your family suffer. And at that moment, there was this kind of calculus that took place and I just thought, I gotta provide for my family and there's this certain like, you know, I'll, I, I'm just gonna, you know, he's the boss, I, that's it, I guess. I'm just gonna go along with this. And um, so then I did. And um, a few weeks later, it's uh, Christmas, and we're at the midnight mass, and I'm, you know, an altar boy there. There's incense, they're singing all these songs in Latin, and like it's, it's kind of incomprehensible. And then he gets up and starts to talk, and I'm just thinking to myself, dads aren't supposed to leave. Um, you know, maybe if I'd been a better kid, that uh, he wouldn't have left. And then he, I, I don't think that guy's supposed to be doing that to me, but what, you know, he said that stuff about sins. And then he's talking about um, God sending his son. And I look up and there's a crucifix with some kind of malignant dead guy on it. And um, I'm just thinking the fucking, like adults, man, I have no fucking clue. Like how the fuck does all of this shit make sense? Like it just, there, there's I, there's no rhyme or reason to how these people, you know, who are supposed to be in charge, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I'm listening to him talk, and I'm looking up at the crucifix, and I'm looking out at the people, I'm smelling the incense, and poinsettias everywhere. And I'm just like, all right, like, just try and, like, do what they say, and just get them off your back. Like, don't make any waves. And, um... So for the next year, I would try and like think to myself, don't like, you know, at the beginning I would go over when it snowed and shovel the sidewalk and, and, and I wouldn't go and he'd call and be, where's, where's Ed? And my, my mom would be like, you gotta go. You know, it's the bishop calling, you have to go. It, it was just like hopeless. So it was just like, okay, I, I gotta, you know, I have to provide for my family. We can't take any more setbacks. And then the next year I asked if I could not uh, be an altar boy anymore and I could um, not go to the Catholic school. I wanted to go to the public school and um, just kind of quit going to church and um, you know, kind of made my way. And I didn't really have anything to do with him. Yeah, I'm sure you know he uh, found other outlets. And um, I didn't really need anything uh, un, un, you know, I had like kind of authority issues and uh, didn't really, um, 
you know, I had a lot of problems in terms of rebellion. But when I was a senior in high school, I, I really wanted to go to Notre Dame. And there was no fucking way on earth this, like, nobody kid who's nobody in my family had ever been to college uh, was going to get uh, to go to Notre Dame. So I sent a letter to the bishop. And uh, so he, he wrote me a letter, and I got in. And, um, uh, you know, I had good SATs and all that, but... Uh, I'm sure it was a letter from the Bishop of Wyoming that was that pushed the right buttons. And as I grew up and, and, and went to school and all that, I didn't really hate the guy. Like, at the end of the day, you're going to have, uh, you know, pedophile clergy. You're going to have crooked cops. You're going to have bad doctors. Um, those, that, it's, it's people, right? People in the world, people in jobs. But it's the institution that should have, um, should have done the right thing. And it turns out the reason we got this young bishop come to Wyoming was that he'd been transferred from Kansas City where they had caught him um, because one of the kids that he'd been molesting killed himself. And so then to cover it up, uh, they sent him to, to the middle of nowhere, to where I lived. And... Um, I, you know, anyway, I got my education. I, I studied architecture and philosophy. I got to go to school in Rome for a year. I learned uh, to speak Italian. I learned a lot about the history of the Catholic Church. I learned a lot about um, Latin. You know, Latin phrases are important in philosophy and architecture. And I guess the phrase that uh, I feel like I learned uh, very early on, uh, was quid pro quo. Thanks. I keep on rising up, but I'll keep on rising up. Every day I'm rising up. I keep on rising up, but I'll keep on rising up Every day I'm rising up Do you want to get hurt? Need to get ditched? Do you need to get let down? Need some? Wonderful shoe, need to get dropped just to fool your true self out. I keep on rising up, but I'll keep on rising up. Every day I'm rising up. I keep on rising up, but I'll keep on rising up. Every day I'm rising up. That is it for this episode, folks. This is Mike Doty behind me now, and we have made it through this especially heavy episode of Risk. That was my friend Ed we just heard. Now, Ed actually told us that story last year 
and asked us to hold on to it for as long as possible because there were legal situations going down. And I'm a little unclear which clerical figure is which, but I know that one is now in jail and two have just been fired. There were three clerical figures in the Minneapolis St. Paul Archdiocese who were mixed up in all that. So the wheels of justice have begun turning in this case at least. Now don't forget all those shows we have coming up. New York and Los Angeles, Minneapolis, Reno, Philly, DC. You can find all that information at risk-show.com/slash tour we still need pitches for all those shows you can find me at kevin at risk-show.com if you're looking for storytelling training of any kind one-on-one workshops over skype corporate workshops in-person workshops we're at the storystudio.org stop by and see what we have to offer And don't forget, Risk is a happy member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts. But like all the podcasts on the network, we are listener supported. It means a heck of a lot to us. It means life or death to us to be supported by those who love and believe in what we do. So if you do, go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member or make a one-time donation and be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I'll keep on rising up, well I'll keep on rising up Every day I'm rising up I'll keep on rising up, well I'll keep on rising up Every day I'm rising up Definitely. We'll yeah. we'll figure it out. <laughs> cool. Talk to you soon. Yeah, bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that